Go and grab a Bible and open it with me to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is in the Old Testament. No problem if you need to use your table of contents to find it. No, no problem there. But if you're walking through the Old Testament, Jeremiah is somewhere about the middle, about Psalms, as, as before that, the Psalms and Proverbs, and eventually get to Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, keep going, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. All right, there we go. So you get to right after the book of Obadiah. I know that helps, but uh, yeah, there it is. The book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1. You may mark it in your Bible because over the next several weeks throughout the month of July and into the first week of August, we'll be walking through the book of Jonah one chapter at a time. And then the plan is, is after our study in the book of Jonah, we're going to talk about the issue of anxiety for a few weeks. We're going to talk about how do you deal with and walk through anxiety and what does the Bible have to say about that before in the fall we get back to our series in the book of Matthew. But today I want to talk to you from Jonah chapter 1, and I want to talk to you about God's pursuit of the runaway. God's pursuit of the runaway. Have you ever run from God? We run from God in different ways, perhaps you or somebody that you know grew up in church. You grew up in church and you know God is true and you know that He loves you and you know that His Word is right and you know all of these realities and yet you run. And yet you run away from God. You check out and you go your own pathway. You do your own thing. Maybe it's fear of following Him. Maybe it's fear of what others are going to think. Or maybe it's just this, this feeling that you want to go your own way and do your own thing in your life. And you're afraid of what following Him might mean. So you come up with all kinds of excuses to justify your running, to justify your fleeing from him. It may be things like, well, everybody in the church is a big hypocrite. Or what about the evil in the world? How can there be a good, loving God as we just prayed about if there is evil in the world? And so we come up with all of these reasons and all of these excuses to justify our running. Have you ever run from God or have you ever known someone who has run from God? And is there any hope for the runner? Also in the Sometimes in our lives, we run from God in other ways. Perhaps maybe we feel God calling us to a particular ministry or to a particular way of serving Him. Maybe you felt called to the ministry in your life. Maybe you felt called to serve the Lord as, a, as either a pastor or a, or a missionary or a teacher or something, something like that, and you run from God. I know exactly what that's about because, because I knew from an early age what I was called to do in my life, and I tried everything else I could think of not to do that. <laughs> And not to do this. I know what it's like to run. There's others of you who may have felt called to certain ministry. Maybe you feel called to, maybe you feel God leading you to to do something in the kitchen or here at the church or maybe to minister and love on the homeless. Or maybe God has put it in your heart to teach a class or some other way of serving Him. And you've been resisting Him, and you've been running from God. Maybe it's to play an instrument or whatever it might be, but you've been resisting the Lord. You've been running from Him. Is there any hope for those who are running? The good news for you is that the book of Jonah gives you a lot of hope. And if you're ever prayed for a runner, it gives you a lot of hope that God chases after the runners. And He chases after us when we run. So there's issues that we deal with today that the book of Jonah addresses. We 
In our world today, people are trying to find their core identity in all kinds of things in this culture other than Christ. We live in a culture where people are trying to define themselves at their very core in terms of their ethnicities, in terms of racial issues, in terms of their sexuality, in terms of all kinds of other different ways that our culture is saying, define yourself in this way. Tell what you are about in this way. Define who you are. And here in the book of Jonah, it also addresses those questions of identity and calls us to find our identity in Christ alone, in God alone. What is God's purpose for our life? And is there a deeper meaning and source of meaning for our identity in our lives? The book of Jonah addresses that issue and those issues. Have you ever wondered why life is so hard sometimes? Have you ever wondered why it seems like every time you turn the calendar over to a new week or to a new day or to a new page, it seems like there is a new storm that is awaiting for you on that day? There's a unique trial, there's a unique thing, there's something, and you get even to the point where you hardly even want to get out of bed because it's like, what is it going to be today? Have you ever had times like that when you wonder, God, what is your purpose behind, behind all of these storms that I'm facing? What is your purpose behind all of these things that I am facing in my life, these terrible difficulties that I'm facing in these storms of my life? If you've ever asked any of these gut-wrenching questions, then the book of Jonah is for you. And you thought we were just going to talk about a big fish. (laughs) Oh, it's about so much more than the big fish. In fact, the fish is only mentioned twice in the book of Jonah. Only in two verses do we find the big fish. And we'll talk about that more as we go along, especially in in next week. The book of Jonah is about so much more than that. The book of Jonah is an ancient book, but it has many modern applications. In fact, it speaks to our lives as we live them in our culture here in 2021. It speaks to our struggles and our difficulties that we face today. So what I want to do today is I want to walk through this. I want to walk through this chapter scene by scene. There's three scenes in Jonah chapter 1. So I want to walk through the book of Jonah, or Jonah chapter 1, in three different scenes. We'll read it in three different sections. And then at the very end of today, I want to come, I want to lead us to some application of this passage of Jonah chapter 1 from the text. Three applications, three scenes from Jonah chapter 1. Scene 1 is this, the prodigal prophet. You'll notice in the book of Jonah, Jonah is really the, it's the Old Testament version of the prodigal son story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. In the, in the story of Jonah in chapters 1 and 2, Jonah is just like the younger brother running. And then in Jonah 3 and 4, he's like the older brother complaining about the grace of God on forgiven people. It's the prodigal son story in the Old Testament. Here in Jonah chapter 1. Let's pick it up in verse 1 and read verses 1 through 3. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is a prophet. 
And he is preaching somewhere in about the 700s B.C., about the 8th century B.C. He's preaching to the northern, primarily to the northern kingdom of Israel during the time of, if you were to read it in 2 Kings, it would be during the time of King Jeroboam II. And actually, only one other time in the whole Old Testament, he's mentioned a couple of times in the New Testament, but only one other time in the Old Testament is this prophet Jonah mentioned. We find that in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. It says that he restored Israel's border from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord. That's Jeroboam II that's doing this, the God of Israel. According to the word, the God of Israel had spoken through his servant, the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai from Gath Hefer. And so there we have Jonah that is preaching to the northern kingdom of Israel. And he gives a very positive message. He has a great message that he has to, for King Jeroboam II. He says, look, God is going to expand the borders of your kingdom. And guess what? When the prophet says that, woohoo! Oh, man, he is popular. And when it comes to pass, when the borders actually expand of the northern kingdoms, like he was right, yes, go Jonah. Everybody loves prophet Jonah. Everybody thinks he is the man for our times. God speaks again here in the book of Jonah to this prophet. And he says to this faithful servant who has spoken before to the people of God, arise and go. Get up and go. In the original language in the book of, in, in Hebrew, it would be kum lake. Kum Lake would be how you would say what God says here in this passage. Very important for here in a moment. Arise, Kum Lake, go. I want you to get up and I want you to go, great, God, who do I go to? Would I go to the king again? That'd be great. Can I, can I go speak to your people? Can I go preach to the southern kingdom? Where can I go and preach? And he says, ah, Kum Lake, all Nineveh. I want you to get up, get up and go to Nineveh. For their evil has come up before me. Jonah knows all about Nineveh. And that is the last place he wants to go. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire of the ancient world. And they were the ancient terrorists of that particular particular day. It was a great city, huge city, about 60 miles in circumference in what is now modern-day Iraq. Huge city. Not only did it have a circumference, the outer city of 60 miles all the way around, but the inner city had a wall surrounding it, an impenetrable fortress uh, with a wall that was eight miles in length. Somewhere about twice the amount of the people in the Tri-Cities lived there in Nineveh. About 600,000 people called Nineveh home. And they were ruthless right on the very doorstep of Israel. In fact, they were threatening to invade Israel at that very time. So much so that Israel had to pay tribute to the ancient terrorists of the world every single month. Paying them to leave them alone. Paying them to not invade the territory of Israel. Israel. The kings of ancient, ancient Assyria and Nineveh would have given fear in the hearts of anybody who heard their names. They have names such as Sennacherib, Ashurbanipal, and Tilgath-Pileser. And these were ruthless people. 
I want to, it's good that the kids aren't here because I want to give you a flavor for the type of people the Assyrians were. Why is there so much judgment pronounced against the Assyrians in the Bible? Why is it that their evil is so bad? Some of the things that the Assyrians would do when they would conquer people, they would take people, and when they conquered them, they would rip their lips off their faces and let them live out their lives that way. If they wanted to kill you, they wouldn't make it quick. If they wanted to kill you, what they would often do is they would cut off both of your legs and one of your arms, leave you one arm so that they could shake your hand while you died and watch you suffer. They flayed people alive, skinned them and hung human skins around the walls of their city. Sometimes the Assyrians would, were known to actually behead people somewhat similar to terrorists in our world today, they would even behead people and make their friends and loved ones carry around their friends and loved ones' head on a pole. That is who we're talking about. And talk about just another culture of the ancient world. These were ruthless people. And God says to Jonah, get up, go to Nineveh, and preach judgment against them. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> what does Jonah do? Jonah knows something about God. Every other prophet of the Old Testament that preached against Nineveh got to stay in Israel and preach against Nineveh. They never had to go there. They never had to go to the Assyrians and preach against them for their wickedness in the world. But here is God saying to Jonah, I want you to go to them. I want you to go to the city right in the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and I want you to preach judgment against them. Why is Jonah having such a hard time with this? Jonah has such a hard time with this because he knows that if he goes there and preaches judgment, there is a possibility that they would repent. And if they hear his preaching and repent, God might have mercy on them. And Jonah at this moment says, they are the least likely people that should ever have mercy in this world. How could anybody ever care about them or go to them? And so what does Jonah do? God says to Jonah, get up and go. So Jonah gets up, so far so good. God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. That would be 500 miles to the east. He starts going west. <laughs> and he goes down to Joppa, and he gets on a ship. God wants him to go 500 miles east to Nineveh. He gets on a ship going 500 miles west to Tarshish, which is in Spain. <laughs> go to Iraq. I want you, and he gets on a boat, and he goes to Spain. He's going as far away from God and his call and his word and his voice and his presence as he can possibly get. I want to get away. I want to get as far away, far away from this God as I can possibly get because I think he got it wrong. <laughs> because I think he got it wrong. He gets away. 
Not only does he go west when God tells him to go east, but if you look at the, if in the original language, you can see it very clearly. But in verse 2, Jonah goes down to Joppa, down into the boat. In verse 5, he goes down to the lowest part of the boat. And the way it says it in Hebrew, he goes down to a deep sleep. All same words. God says go up. He, God says go east. He goes west. God says get up. He goes down, 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 down. Five times. <laughs> Away from the presence of the Lord. But Jonah knows something as well, but he's denying it. He's living in denial at this moment in his life. No matter how far you run, you'll never get away from the presence of the Lord. And that is the grace of God. That God in his grace pursues his running prophet. And God in his grace will pursue you as well when you run from him. That brings us to scene two. Scene two, God hurls a storm. I love the way that it pictures this in the passage. The word that it uses for God sending the storm is actually not the word for, is not the word for throwing or sending. It's actually the same word for throwing a spear. God is throwing a lasso. God's throwing a storm. That storm at Jonah. Let's pick it up in verse 4 and read through verse 9. In verse 4 it says this, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? <laughs> I'm sure he said it like that. <laughs> what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on what account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And then he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. God speaks to Jonah. Jonah runs away. End of story. Shortest book in the Bible. <laughs> I'm glad it's not. Because if you've ever run from God, like I have sometimes in my life, I'm really glad God loves me and has loved me and chases after me, just as he chases after you. Jonah runs. God chases after him. That's the good news. He's trying to run away from the presence of the Lord, the God of the sea and the dry land. He knows this about God. But what do we also know about God from Scripture? In the book of Psalm, chapter 139, verses 7 through 12, it says this, Where can I go to escape your spirit? What's the answer? Nowhere. Where can I flee from your presence? What's the answer? <laughs> Nowhere. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, east or west, no matter where you go, Jonah, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, maybe down in the boat, and the light around me will be night, maybe in the deepest part of the boat, and I shut my eyes, even there the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day, 
darkness and light are alike to you. God sees his prodigal prophet running away, and God sends a storm as his lasso to bring him back, to bring him back to himself. He's bringing his wayward child back to himself. And the ship, think about this, the ship, the very thing that Jonah is trusting in to get him away from God in the middle of this storm that God has hurled upon the sea. He's in the middle of the ship. He's trusting in the ship. Ship, you will get me away from God. It's beginning to break up. The very thing that he thought would be safe, the very thing that he thought would give him meaning, the very thing that would deliver him from God to meaning in life is beginning to fall apart all around Jonah. And at that very moment, he is asleep. And he doesn't even realize his life is about to fall, at least as he's planned on it, is about to fall apart around him. The sailors are terrified. And good reason, they are experienced in this passage in this particular day in that era in 780 BC or so so uh, or so uh, thereabouts it would have been Phoenician sailors that he would be sailing with so if you've ever heard of the Phoenicians that's probably who he's sailing with so he's there with very experienced seafaring people of the ancient world and they are terrified it takes a lot to scare them they're calling out to their false god working to lighten the load doing everything that they can everybody is calling out to their god except jonah the servant of the one true and living god jonah is exhausted emotionally physically spiritually in every single way and he's worn out taking a nap in the bowels of the boat And at that particular moment, he is flat worn out. Running from God takes a lot out of you, doesn't it? Eventually, you'll just wear thin. The captain approaches him and he says to Jonah, what are you doing asleep? It's sad at this moment that the world has to ask God's person to pray. (laughs) When the world has to ask God's people to pray, that's a really sad situation. But there is Jonah at the bottom of the boat. The captain comes to him and says to him two words that Jonah has heard before. Remember what God said to Jonah? God said to Jonah, Kum Lake, get up and go. Do you know what the captain says to Jonah? Kum Lake, (laughs) get up. And at that moment, when Jonah heard those two words, he must have looked at the captain and be like, how did you know? (laughs) And how did you find me down here? He knows from that moment that God is pursuing him and will not let him go. The good news for runners, whether it be you or whether it be someone else that you're praying for, is God will pursue them. God won't give up on them. And neither should you. I'm thankful God doesn't give up on the prophet at the bottom of the boat who's asleep and comes to him with these very words. And God won't give up on you and God won't give up on your friends either. Don't give up on them. He says to Jonah, Kumlake, he's heard these words before. Jonah obeys this time. And he goes up on deck. Everybody is praying except for the one who knows God. 
Everybody's praying on the deck and the sailors decide to cast lots to see who is the one who had angered the God of the seas. God's in control of the sea. God's in control of the words that are spoken. God's even in control of the dice at this moment. Think about that. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, it says this, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So there they go. They throw the dice. Jonah looks at him. He's like, there it is. I can't run. I cannot run away from the Lord. The Lord is running after the runner. And then five questions come in frantic repetition from the sailors. They ask him question after question after question. Who is to blame? What is your business? Where are you from? Where is your country? Where are your people from? What are you doing here? And really, they're Their questions all can be summarized by one question, the question of the book of Jonah. Jonah, who are you? How are you defining yourself, Jonah? Are you finding your ultimate identity in your relationship with God? Or are you finding your identity in some secondary characteristic about you? Not an unimportant characteristic, but certainly a secondary characteristic compared to your relationship with God. How do I know this? Because the second half of the book. How do I know this? Because how does Jonah answer the question, who are you? What's the very first thing he says? He says, I am a Hebrew. He doesn't define himself as his, in his relationship with God. His first identity, his core identity at this moment, and when it comes to preaching to the Ninevites, is his ethnicity. And we live in a world today where we are tempted to define ourselves, even as Christians, in terms of other things, other realities, important things, yes, but not the ultimate thing that is in Christ, that is in him. More on that here in a moment. He doesn't begin with his relationship with God. He begins with his identification of his ethnicity. Then he moves into what seems to be secondary importance to Jonah at this moment because he doesn't, when he says he fears God, he's certainly not acting like it. He's running from God. He says, I fear the God of the land and the sea. Listen, being Hebrew wouldn't save Jonah. Only knowing the one true and living God would. Whatever your identity is, Whatever you can come up with won't save you. The only thing that can save you is that you know God, is that you know Christ. Jonah confesses his faith that he's a Yahweh worshiper. The Phoenicians can worship a sea god in comparison to him, but he worships the God who made the seas. But here at this moment, we wonder, Jonah, are you done? Does God have any grace for Jonah? That brings us to scene three. Scene three, the sailors hurl Jonah. A lot of hurling in this passage, some in the next chapter, but we'll talk about that next week. That's gross. But, um, <laughs> but scene three, the sailors hurl Jonah. All right, pick it up there in verse 10. There in verse 10, he says, the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord as because he had told them, verse 11. And then he said to them, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will be quiet, will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They don't want to murder somebody and be more guilty. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. 
Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The sailors here are terrified. What is this guy doing? Jonah says, the only solution is to toss me overboard. Uh, we're already in trouble with some God. We don't know him yet, but uh, let's, not, let's not be killing anybody else on this ship. And so they decide to row again, row as hard as they possibly can, but they get nowhere against God. Here in the story, God's not only trying to reach a prophet, he's also trying to use the prophet to reach some Phoenician sailors who also happen to be relatives of the Assyrians. The Assyrians and the Phoenicians are the same people. <laughs> God's going to reach people because his heart is to love people and get them the good news of God. So here at this moment, when they're about to throw Jonah overboard, we find the very first people in the whole book of Jonah who call out to God. And do you know who it is? It's the Phoenician sailors. And they call out to God and they say, God, forgive us, Lord. They pick up Jonah and they hurl him into the sea. God used Jonah to reach pagans anyway. He knows how to reach lost people through us, even in our rebellion and running away from him. Jonah goes into the water. He goes down, down, down into the waves right at the moment when he is about to give up and just breathe in water and drown in the sea. Everything goes dark for him. And chapter 1 ends with Jonah is swallowed up with a great fish. I'm sure that was the sound effect in Hebrew. <laughs> Jonah is swallowed up by a great fish. And does he become fish food? Is this the judgment of God on Jonah that you're going to die in the ocean, which terrified Hebrew people, and you're going to be fish food? The answer is... Come back next week and we'll find out. <laughs> you probably know what the answer is. But chapter 1 ends on a cliffhanger. And we'll not get to what happens to Jonah until next week. I want to give you a hint of what I think about big fishes swallowing people whole and delivering them up three days later. Um, I believe in a God who created the universe. I believe in a Christ who raised the dead. I believe in a Jesus who walked on water. I believe in a Christ who got up out of the grave and defeated death. I have no problem with a God of miracles. <laughs> and God can create a fish and can do a miracle where he can be preserved three days in a fish. I have zero problem with that. Why? Because I believe in miracles. <laughs> and without miracles, I'd be in a heap of trouble. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> I think you would be too. Don't let the modern scientific age make you have to explain away miracles. We'll talk about some crazy ways next week people try to explain away this, but that's for next week. 
Let's get into the application. Three applications of this passage. How do we apply this to our our lives? Number one is this. Trust in the character of the sovereign, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, loving God. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever doubted the goodness and the wisdom of God? Have you ever doubted that maybe God said something, maybe God's doing something in your life, maybe something happens in your life, and you wonder, what in the world are you doing? And you doubt the goodness and wisdom and justice of God. God, why are you doing this? Here in this passage, the reason why Jonah runs, the reason why Jonah gets as far away from God as he can is because at this moment, he doubts the wisdom and the goodness and the justice of God. In this moment, I cannot understand why God is doing what God is doing. Those people deserve justice. Judgment. Have you ever wondered what God is doing and doubted his goodness? Maybe you sat at the doctor's office and the doctor came back and you thought he was going to say, all clear, see you next year, and he didn't. And in that moment, you doubt the goodness and the mercy and the wisdom of God. Maybe you've checked your email and for the 30th time this week, it seems, you've gotten another letter that says, thank you for applying to this job, but we have found other applicants that have better qualifications than you. And you're sick of it. And you wonder why. I don't understand. I don't understand what you are doing in this moment. Maybe you've been waiting for that special someone to show up and it's how many Friday nights have you spent alone in the past year and you wonder God you ever going to hear my prayer does God really know what he's doing Jonah in this moment is questioning God's wisdom that God does God really know what he's doing is God really know what is best in our lives and perhaps like Jonah you're tempted to run perhaps like Jonah you're tempted to give up on prayer by by just giving up on it maybe you don't even want to talk to him maybe you'd give up on your devotion to church Jonah is on the run and not only does does Jonah run from God but he runs to something that he says will save him will deliver him through in this instance that's what happens so oftentimes when when in our lives when when we walk through seasons of struggle with understanding who God is and what his plan is in our life, we run from God and we run to ships that eventually break up. Substances, alcohol, prescription drugs, ships that eventually may get us out of port, maybe get us a little bit away from him, but eventually we'll start shaking and breaking up in the midst of the storms of life. They cannot deliver you safe. People trust in the internet. People trust in recreation. People trust in their jobs. People trust in all kinds of of things that will get me away from that. I want to go my own way. I want to go my own way. I want to do my own thing. Get me away from that. And yet, as you're going, it starts to break up. You wonder, what's God doing in all of this? But in all of it, it's all evidence of God's grace pursuing you, helping you to trust in the one who knows the end from the beginning, the only one who knows how to deliver you safe through this life, through these storms. That is our God. Jonah 1 teaches us to trust God and teaches us to trust God even when we don't understand what he's doing. 
Even when we can't put all the pieces together, even why we don't understand why is he telling me to do this or why is this happening in my life, it helps us to trust in God. He is sovereign. He's sovereign over the storm, the captain's response, the boat over the fish. He's all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, and he loves you. He loves you enough to chase after the one, the prodigal runner. Trust in him. Number two application is this. Trust God's loving pursuit in the midst of the storm. There's two unique experiences of the storm here in this passage. There's Jonah's experience and the sailor's experience. Jonah experiences the storm as a consequence of his own sin. And there's times in our lives and times in your life when you walk through situations and you walk through trials and you walk through storms and they are the consequences of your own sin. But then there's the sailor's experience in this whole story in Jonah 1 where they're experiencing a tremendous storm in their life and in their soul, and it's not a consequence of their own sin. It's actually a consequence of somebody else's sin. And yet they're still going through a fierce storm in their lives. And both of those kinds of people are here today. There's some of you here today who are facing a storm and the reason for this storm is because of some sin in your life. Well, I love what Tim Keller says in his commentary. He says the following. He says, all sin has a mighty storm attached to it. The image is powerful because even in our technologically advanced society, we cannot control the weather. You cannot bribe a storm or baffle with it with logic and rhetoric. It just is. And the purpose of the storm is to lead you to understand where your walking away from God is going to lead you and to lead you back into relationship with God. One kind of person is one who is experiencing storms because of your own sin. There's other people in this room right now who are experiencing storms in your life because of somebody else, because of somebody else's sin that's close to you, or because of the sin of a sin-sick world. What is God doing? Does God have any purpose in that? Does God have any purpose in, in this at all? Can God do anything with this? Well, with the, these sailors who are caught up in the midst of this storm, God is working in their lives. How? Because at the beginning, they worship false gods, and at the end, they're worshiping the one true and living God, calling out to Him, making prayers to Him. They get saved, and they make vows to God and sacrifices to Yahweh. God works in the midst of the storm, even though it wasn't their fault, but he uses it for his glory and for their good. Romans chapter 8, 28 says it like this. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. That is very good news. God used the storm to rescue Jonah from his running and identity crisis, and he uses the storm to rescue bystanders. God is in control. You can trust him in the midst of the storm. Let the storm do its work in your life. Let God work in the midst of the storm. Number three, find your core identity in your relationship with God. Find your core identity in your relationship with God. One of the realities that we'll see here in Jonah is that Jonah's identity is wrapped up in self-definition rather than God defining who he is. And that is the central problem of our culture today, is 
people trying to self-identify in all kinds of ways and making different aspects of themselves the ultimate reality about themselves rather than seeing that aspect of themselves in light of their relationship with God. Let me give you two examples of way people do this today and how the Bible instructs us as believers. One of them is ethnicity. We live in a world today where people are trying to and encouraging us to find our ultimate identity in terms of our race and ethnicity. Now, not something unimportant, don't get me wrong, and not something that we don't need to talk about as believers, and not even saying that there's not issues in our lives and in the world. But the world is seeking to say that race is the ultimate reality in your life by which you should view all other identities in your life, and God says, no, who you are in relationship with me, your identity of whose you are, not who you are, is the most important thing about you that makes sense of all of your other things that God has created you to be in your life. It is not our ethnicity that is at the center of who we are. It is God's throne that is at the center of the universe. And that is going to be Jonah's central problem in this book is self-definition getting off focus from God and getting onto some aspect of self that he's elevated over his relationship with God. That's one of the things that's happening in our culture right now. The way to work through that is let us find our identities in Christ. And as we find our identities in Christ, it makes sense of the other identities that God says are important enough that every tribe, tongue, nation, language, and people is going to be in heaven. But in relationship to God at the center, that's how we work out the stuff that we face in this world with our racial issues in our society. More on that here in chapters 3 and 4 in Jonah. But not only do we see in our world today people trying to find their ultimate identity in terms of their ethnicity, but people also are trying to find their ultimate identity in terms of their own self-expression of gender and sexuality. We see that self-identity so often today that when you're, you're, we're told that when you introduce yourself to somebody today, you're supposed to say your name and your pronouns. (laughs) So much so that that has become a core of who it is that the world says you are defined by your sexuality. Is it any wonder that we would see this in a world that for 150 years has been taught over and over and over again that the ultimate reality is Darwinistic evolution. You are, the purpose of life is the survival of the fittest to pass on your genes to the next generation. And so in a culture that's bought that full well, is it any wonder that sexuality has become the ultimate God and identity of that generation? And so we see that in our lives. We see that in our culture. And Jonah 1 says, no, your identity, your core identity is not in sexual self-expression or any other expression that you could come up with. Your ultimate identity that you find in your life is in your relationship with God. And then you let his definitions define all of the other aspects of your life, your ethnicity, your sexuality, everything else in light of who he calls you and who he has made you to be. God and his truth and his word is the ultimate 
true and ultimate definition of our identities in Christ. And anytime those things get out of whack is what you see in our culture today running rampant. Jonah's identity was too shallow. His, the issue was not who are you, but whose are you? What's so fascinating about this book that's so much about running from God and identity and dealing with storms in life and eventually missions, how do all of those come together? And ultimately, how can God be just and judge the sin of the Ninevites and also be forgiving? And how can God rescue runners like me and you and people who struggle with identity like our culture? How can God rescue any of that? Well, you know, the book of Jonah is really just a foreshadowing of a greater reality. Because the whole book of Jonah is about one who went down into a watery grave and was one day rescued from that watery grave. And God is foreshadowing in this story what he's going to do to rescue runners, to rescue those who are in, in, in the storm, to rescue those who are struggling with identity. How would he do it? Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. For as Jonah was in the belly of the, few fi of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, and then he will rise. The whole book of Jonah is whispering us to, to us in the Old Testament, shouting to us, well, he's shouting to us in both cases, but shouting to us in the New Testament, find your identity and meaning in Christ and him alone. And then through that ultimate definition, all of the other things will come into line as we work them out in our lives. Let me ask you, where are you with Jesus? Where are you in your trusting of Jesus? Are you running from Jesus? Are you trying to find your identity in something else other than who God has defined you as? Who God has said you are in relationship to him? All kinds of ways the world would try to get you to go on this search for identity. It's simple. Let the one who made you define you. Are you going through a storm, a trial in life? Did you need to be reminded today to trust in God? Let's spend a few moments reflecting on what God has spoken to us today, and then we'll stand and we'll pray and we'll respond to what the Spirit is saying. Let's take a moment of silence.